0: G'day, g'day everyone. How are we all? Hope you're all keeping safe in these weird times that we're in and this weird world that we're in. Dane, how are you? What's news with you, mate? Not a whole lot, Josh.
1: Got my first dose of uh, vaccination today and feeling like shit, but we're really oh, good. Oh
0: yeah. The fun stuff, hey? Yeah, that's it. How's your arm? bit like a corky? Like a good punch?
1: yeah that's about it then you get a little bit of a headache but you know uh what else is new I guess I know you copped it pretty hard so
0: yes I had my second uh Pfizer vaccination yesterday and I have been in bed pretty much all day today um between cold shivers, aching bones and body and the whole... Basically, just you go down the list of side effects and barring headaches I've had just about everyone today. So that was fun. Um, but it, it is what it is. Uh, today was basically a write-off day. So, But that's all right. Um, what else is news at the moment? Let's see. I don't think there's much else for the time being. Uh, I know we're going to do a, a follow-up episode about... what's happening with us at the moment. So I will leave that for when we do that episode. Um, Today, we're going to talk about uh, the world of regulation and self-regulation. And uh, I suppose the question is to be regulated or not to be. That's the question. (laughs) You couldn't help yourself. (laughs) Of course not. Of course not. There's going to be a cliche somewhere. Come on. And uh, of course, this was recommended by a lovely friend of ours. You know who you are. Um, we, uh, the, 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 backing for this, uh, was a, a show that's come out recently, uh, in the States where a gent goes around and, um, does like inspections of people's collections, I suppose is what you'd call it basically.
1: Oh, I'm not familiar with this show.
0: Yeah. It's, uh, I think he was saying it's on Stan or something like that. One of those okay. platforms. And basically he's like, uh like kind of like the RSPCA sort of deal, but yep. for exotics um, over, this is, this is in the States as well. So uh, the term exotic animal is used very flippantly for just about everything from monkeys to big cats, to snakes and, lizards uh, and okay. everything in between. So, yep. um, and I suppose it's sort of similar to uh, some of the other, you know, content that's out there, like the, uh, blackfish documentary which is all about orcas at sea world and uh of course no one can forget the tiger king series and the absolute mess that that is um so (laughs) we're going to talk about the world of regulation today um and i thought we would start off with uh the 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 to be regulated and the not to be regulated and then we're going to talk about uh how we can self-regulate as well um So as far as regulation goes for us down here in Victoria, uh, we have two licensing systems and sort of three levels of species that you can keep. So there's the species that do not require a license, which for your reptile side of things is blotched blue tongues, uh, eastern and northern blue tongues, uh, yep. Murray River and eastern long Neck turtles, Cunningham skinks, white skinks, I think, and marbled geckos. I think that's about it for, for reptiles. Yeah, there's not a whole lot. And I think there's a, there's a couple of amphibians as well. Then you've got the basic license, which is sort of your, your next step up, I suppose. Um, although for some people that may or may not make sense. Um, essentially it's the stuff that you're going to find in pet shops, which ranges from everything through, through your Python species, particularly carpets and Antaresia, uh and all, all, pretty much all pythons barring rough scales and green trees. Scrubbies and old pellies, I think. Yeah, something along those lines. Um, Different geckos, different skinks, the stuff that's easy to care for, supposedly. We'll go with that. Um, We say
1: easy to care for loosely, because there is also some stuff. Yeah, although there
0: is (laughs) there is lace (laughs) monitors sold in pet shops and on a basic license, but we'll we'll come back to that. We'll come back to that. Yeah. Then you've got your advanced license, which is supposedly all the stuff that's uh, difficult or dangerous to work with. So that's your crocodiles, your venomous snakes and your pygmy bearded dragons. Makes sense. (laughs) But we are not here to necessarily uh, take a dig at the regulation that we do have, because in all honesty, I think it is a good thing. And although this may be quite controversial, and I know I've spoken to a few people that agree with me here, um, I almost think we need more particularly when it comes to uh, what you're finding in pet stores and what is being widely distributed uh, in the, in the hobby. Um, Mm. Obviously the, the poster child for all of this is going to be uh, your lace monitors in particular. Um, For some reason there are basic licensed species down here uh, and I know recently there have been quite a few coming through different pet stores. Um, Whether you agree with people keeping lace monitors privately or not is one thing, but I don't think having them in pet stores and, you know, having the capability to sell that to someone that doesn't have any experience is probably not a good idea. What do you you think, Jane?
1: Look, I, I reckon you're pretty much on the money with that especially with them being in pet stores too, they're more likely to get in the hands of someone who has absolutely no idea or previous experience with them, you know, because the whole idea of pet pet shops is making money off, well, selling animals and their products. So they're not really, depending on the staff member, of course, they're not particularly going to care what happens to that animal or that person once it leaves the store. It's all about the dollar at the end of the day.
0: Yeah. So yeah, definitely needing a, A different moral or ethical compass, there, I would say. Yeah,
1: that's it. And not everyone's going to be the same.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. hmm. I suppose it's the same sort of thing with, you know, things like olive pythons and blackheads. I really don't know if they're, they should be a pet shop animal either, to be honest. Oh, Um,
1: blackheads, really?
0: Yeah, yeah, just because they can, I, I suppose, blackheads are a bit of an extreme example because depending on how you keep them, depends on how big they get. Um, ah, okay. I've met some quite large individuals, although I would say they've more than likely been overfed, so they're probably probably less of a problem with the blackheads. but specifically olive pythons um, really don't know if people should be able to get that as a first pet snake, to be honest. Um, yeah,
1: that makes sense.
0: You know, a- an animal that's going to be, what, usually two and a half to three meters plus, depending on the subspecies and, you know, the history behind it. Uh, well and truly over, you know, 10, 15, 20 kilos plus as well. I don't know if you should be selling, you know, little hatchies at a pet shop to people. I don't really know if that's the best way forward, to be honest. Mm. I think there's, there's got to be a, a thought process there, at least. Yeah, a lot of
1: people won't. Understand just how big they do get as
0: well. Well, I mean, you even see it with people that buy, believe it or not, people that buy Antaresia and people that buy carpet pythons. They go, "Oh, this is whoa! This is a lot bigger than I expected. Can't really yep. deal with this. Gonna, you know, gonna sell it to someone else who might be able to deal with that. You know. Um, but I think you also you also got to consider. I suppose that the liability risk with particularly those two uh, species that we spoke about um, once those get to adult size, as bad as it sounds, they could potentially do some serious damage if you don't know what you're doing. And I suppose you're reliant on the pet store people and the, the individual that's going to buy the animal to both equally do as much research as they can about the species and to present that information in hopes that they're ready for that. Yeah. Like, I don't know. It, uh, it's a tough one. It is definitely a tough one, but I think we're in a pretty good spot. Although our species list hasn't been updated for 10 years, um, we're in a pretty good spot compared to uh, other parts of the world. You know, at least we don't have big reticulated Burmese pythons running through our neighbourhoods, you know or through in national <laughs> parks, it. you know, not um, yet. <laughs> I mean, we've got cane toads, which is, I suppose, close enough. They're probably doing just about as much damage, but um, at least that's not a hobby induced problem. Um, I was listening to a, an old episode of another podcast, uh, the, the animals at home podcast, uh, which is a fantastic okay. resource. If anyone is interested in that, highly recommend it. Um, and there was, it was, uh, the gent was talking to uh, someone who was studying invasive species in Florida. And um, it was quite extraordinary listening to, you know, the the multitude of species that they've found that have been dumped down there. Um, And, of course, the problem with somewhere like that, similarly climatically to a northern Queensland or a Northern Territory or Kimberley, that sort of range, um, that's perfect for reptiles, regardless of where they are, pretty much. (laughs) Like, that is ideal, you know, constantly warm, plenty of sun, plenty of food, what could go wrong? (laughs) And, um, you know, another thing that I saw the other day that I thought was quite hilarious, they've had, um, there's some American town that someone has uh, released a zebra cobra or something like that, some sort of a cobra species, and they've got a Twitter page set up for it. Just oh like,
1: yeah, I did see that. And they just <laughs> share
0: different memes of this snake that's like MIA somewhere in their town. I just, I just can't fathom that to be honest. Like you can remember, it's a cobra too. It's not like it's just like a python. Exactly, exactly. This like, thing will kill someone <laughs> if you know. And there's every chance that there's going to be very little people with antivenom for something like that as well. Oh which yeah, is actually that's another that's another point that we are going we're gonna touch on as well. Is the, the, the venomous world, um, which is a whole other kettle of fish overseas. So, what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about the Australian version in particular. Um, yeah. And I suppose some of the hazards that can present themselves if there was less legislation involved. Um, so, in Victoria at least, uh, all of your venomous snakes are uh, barring like your colubrids if you count those as that same vein uh they're all advanced licensed species um i believe even the colubrids might be as well i haven't checked that list in a little while um anyway so you've got you know obviously you've got your tiger snakes your red belly blacks death adders mulgers you name it it's on that list as long as it's uh found in australia and part of their you know their their species list i suppose um now one fortunate thing that we have in australia is uh, universal health care and like medicare systems in place so that when someone gets bitten by a uh, a venomous snake and has to take anti-venom it's not going to kill them in bank charges um unlike some of the other parts of the world where you know you see the bills after people get tagged by things and Just go, oh, Jesus, maybe you should have just gone six feet under instead. (laughs) (laughs) Literally getting charged house deposits. Yeah, some of those medical bills are nasty buggers. Um, But that's one thing that's going for us. But because we don't have many exotic species, barring what's kept at zoos, there is no anti-venom for the large portion of venomous snakes that are found elsewhere in the world. So if someone was to, say, hypothetically speaking, illegally keep something like a cobra of some description or a viper of some sort, and they were to get tagged, there's every likelihood that there would be no antivenom for that species in the region, which includes Australia and New Zealand. Uh, Yeah, like basically you're stuffed, really, if it's potent enough. Um, Yeah. And then if you were to allow exotic venomous species in particular, how do you police that? And who creates the anti-venom for that species? Do you get the keeper to create their own anti-venom? Like, where's the, where's the line that you cross there? Where, where does I, that...
1: Per, yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe in the US, a uh, majority of venomous keepers actually have to supply their own anti-venom. With collections
0: in in some areas, certainly that is the case, um, or at least have. I'm not
1: sure if that's like a regulated thing, or if that's just something they do out of. Uh, I think you know, it's a bit of both. Kind of ex- yeah, if you get what I mean.
0: Yeah, depending on depending on the the area and the the keeper, I believe is like a an uh, it's either a, a rule in some spots or it's a you know best case scenario type of deal, I suppose. Um. Mm. But then also, how do you look at the quality of antivenom that's produced? there's a multitude of questions that come into play, particularly with you know exotic venomous reptiles uh, because yeah. barring the the main you know snakes that we have here, there's not really a whole lot on that side of things if that makes any sense. I don't know, maybe I'm just waffling now um, but yeah, it's like a the big grey area there, if something like that was to happen.
1: Um, yeah, definitely.
0: Now, there's also, of course, we did mention at the start, the world of uh, private mammal keeping, uh, which is quite controversial in Australia and overseas. Fortunately, and I honestly mean this, fortunately, uh, we are only allowed to keep native species. Um, yes, I don't think we really need people walking around with chimps and tigers and lions in their backyard, to be honest. I don't think that's really a good idea. You know, I think there's a few OHS issues there. We've already got, uh, <coughs> we've already got strict enough regulations about uh, people that keep dingoes, at least in Victoria, which is a whole separate licensing system, might I add, um, which I think works relatively well from what I've seen. Um, essentially, the, the dingo license itself is separate to the rest of the private keeping licenses and they've got set requirements for how to uh, build the enclosure essentially to make sure that it's not going to get out unsolicitedly and do things that it's not supposed to do and that sort of thing. Um, Which I think is, I think that works quite well. Um, But I, I can't say I've looked into the legislation behind it, but I would be interested to see how that works with, your mixed animals, if that makes sense. Um,
1: what, well, like you're saying, uh, dingo cross, you know, like your average dog, or
0: yeah, yep,
1: in what way, okay. yeah?
0: Um, because in I believe it's in New South Wales, they can't have all or, or there's like a regulation around the pure animals, but the mixed ones are like open season, uh, yeah. I, I, that again, is I might, barrier. I might need some clarification from those that are listening about that, but that was my understanding of it last time I did any reading into it, which was um, quite a few years ago. So I'm not sure if that's still relevant uh, today. Um, But as far as native mammal keeping goes in Australia, we have um, Victoria and South Australia, which have quite comprehensive lists for private keeping. And of course, like anything, there's a few questionable choices there as well about the 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 lists um but that's a story for another day really um then you've got new south wales that is only able to keep two species of native mammals uh aside from the dingo depending on what you consider that that's kind of its own kettle of fish you know five k's over there something like that Um, so they've got the i believe it's the plains rat and a hopping mice species of some description. Um, Okay. The Queensland is no, no go zone. Uh, I am not too sure about the NT, to be honest. I can't say I've done a lot of, a lot of looking there. Um, WA, I believe is a no go zone as well from memory. But again, for those listening, feel free to uh, correct us in the comments. Um, And then you've got, Tasmania which is a no-go zone as well like always okay. um, <laughs> yeah. um so it's quite interesting I know in New South Wales and I believe it was in Queensland as well they made a big push a couple of years ago to get some more native mammal species added to their their licensing systems um, okay it'll be very interesting to see whether that eventuates anytime soon Um. But I think you'll find that the groups of, that hold the power at the moment uh, are not those that support private keeping of mammal species, put it that way, um, which probably isn't going to do them any favours in the long run. The, the private keepers, that is, and their likelihood of keeping more than just the two species of native uh, rodents.
1: Yeah, I but, feel like you um, might be on the money with that.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think they've hit a couple of brick walls uh, over the last couple of years with that side of things. But it's certainly an interesting argument. You know, I know a lot of wildlife carers really aren't keen on private keeping, um, but I don't really see the difference realistically. Like, aside from the fact that, in theory, the animals get released once they're fully, you know, fully healthy, the husbandry is still the same, no? Same with a zoo, yes, like in theory. Correct. I don't see why there's a a high and mighty approach by some in this, you know, in this argument. Um, I always love the this rhetoric that keeps getting played um, that private people can't have zoo size and style enclosures. I just love it because it doesn't make sense. Um, although it, it does make sense regarding self-regulation side of things which we will talk about in a bit later realistically if you have the means anyone can do it so i don't see why there's such a problem if you get what i'm saying
1: i mean in talking things of like mammals and stuff you may uh zoo necessarily zoo and style enclosures uh size wise may not be achievable for the average you know suburban household but yeah, you know, definitely. Like for reptiles and such, um, I don't see why big enclosures, which are typically uh, what is it the the bare minimum on the literally in the licensing system. Yeah, yeah. You, you you that can't be achieved.
0: Mm, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, that, it was interesting. What yeah, it was interesting. I actually looked at the um, at that the size side of things. Um, And they're actually a lot more comprehensive than I originally thought. So I will cop that one on the chin from the other day when we were talking about that. Um, When I actually looked at the the sizes and measured them out, barring terrestrial snakes, uh, most of the sizes were pretty accurate, to be honest. Like what I would do, I think they say it's up to four metres of two snakes is a certain ratio per length, width, and height. Um, okay. But most of them are actually pretty comprehensive. And I, surprisingly, and to be completely honest, I would say that the large portion of private keepers are nowhere near that.
1: No, oh, absolutely near not. That.
0: Not even close. Like, if you've got your rack systems in use barring for little tackers, you're not even close. Like, it's it i'm i was quite surprised actually yeah when i when i measured them out and looked at like you know hypotheticals of putting certain animals in certain enclosure sizes and things and i was like right that's actually a lot bigger than i thought um so i'm actually quite impressed if they were to start really cracking down on that and enforcing that i think you'll find there'll be a lot of people in a lot of strife to be honest
1: oh absolutely
0: I don't, again, I don't know if this is a an every state thing as well, but Victoria's certainly got a pretty comf- comprehensive uh, code of practice uh, and enclosure sizes is part of that code of practice for reptile keeping and all other species, uh, other areas as well. There's a native mammals and a birds list as well. Um, and from most of the reading that I've done, they're pretty comprehensive. The birds ones are probably a little bit too small in some instances, but that might be an, an old fashioned side of things. I don't know. Uh, but certainly for reptiles, they've done a fairly, actually say a fairly decent job there to be honest.
1: Yeah. Unfortunately, it is something that is really overlooked too. It's not necessarily pushed in your face when you, uh, go apply for your license or anything. You really do have to go digging for it yourself.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think the, the, the ironic thing is that, um, playing the I didn't know card isn't going to hold up when they come knocking, <laughs> but they're not going yeah, to, you know, I, I don't know if they're, if they push it enough that it exists, to be honest.
1: like I really don't like, think you do. They do.
0: I would almost suggest if they, if the department does decide for some unknown reason to listen to this, um, send a copy out with the licenses. And get people to actually, you know, look at it and read it because I think you'll find that things will improve if it's shoved down their throats enough. Oh, yeah. People will eventually, eventually, eventually clock on to <laughs> the fact that what they're doing is technically illegal, really. And you can get points uh, taken off you if they do come knocking for two small enclosures, especially if they really want you. If you're not particularly a nice person or something like that, I don't know, not casting aspersions on the people that get done by the department, but if they really (laughs) want you, they'll sting you for everything. So I've heard.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: Which is fair enough too, you know, you've got to hold up the standards, I think.
1: Yeah, it's just placing that fear within people that uh, follow the rules and you've got no problems. Yeah. But if they don't know the rules exist, then why expect them to follow them?
0: <laughs> yeah, I suppose it's a bit of a bit of a two way street, isn't it? Um, yeah, I suppose that's that's most of the the regulation side of things. Um, well, the the government controlled regulation, shall we say? Uh, I think we should talk about self regulation now, and uh, taking a bit of responsibility for your own actions I think is, is an important uh, part of uh, us as a hobby. Uh, We really need to look at in particular, I'm going to say we need to look at the people that we hold on pedestals. Um, That would be my first thing, you know, really think about if that's what you want to be pushing, I suppose. Um, That would probably be the first thing that needs some looking at, but, I would also say that it's, it's on the seller of whatever the animal is to ensure that the buyer knows everything they need to know. Regardless of how much information that the buyer has collected and researched, you really need to step up and tell them everything that they need to know. Like, even if they go, oh, yeah, 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 we're all good, you know, we know what we're talking about, just, just do it. Just, just tell them. <laughs> because the last thing that you need is ill-informed or even uninformed people, you know, looking after these animals. Um, I really think there should be a greater vetting process involved, uh, particularly around the buying and selling of animals. Um, and how that, I suppose, how that all works. Um, there, I think there's certainly ways to improve upon that um, and that side of things, I would say. but
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Self-regulation as a whole is one of those things that can, if it's done right, really change the way that the hobby is perceived on, on a larger scale. Um you know you've got all of these people over, overseas that have these large reptile collections that are starting their own zoos and things and you know upgrading everything to I suppose their dream set up if you would. Um, I think that sort of stuff is going to be a force for good if we can have some more of that happening here. Um, I think that would really put us in a good stead. We need more professional um keepers i suppose i don't know if that 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 doesn't really come across right um people that are gonna put the animal first the keep the kept first over the keeper um yes you know going down that path of oh you know this animal here looks a bit cramped it uses a lot of the space though so maybe i should um give it give it an extra extra piece of space you know upgrade that enclosure or Add that rock wall background in to give it some extra surface area to climb around, or whatever it is. Um, There are ways that we can improve as a hobby to a point where we do come across better. Um, I think the stereotype that we've got in Australia, in a lot of cases, around reptiles, is really doing us no favours. This whole Uh, You know the 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 rack systems that we spoke about in the other lesson, uh, other lesson, lesson. Anyway, (laughs) the other the other podcast. Jesus, bloody hell! Goodness me! Anyway, um, the other podcast, and you know things like just uh, yeah upgrades, 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 upgrades. That's that's basically what I have to say. What do you think, Dane?
1: Well, there's. No such thing as too much room necessarily for an animal. I mean, think about it. They're in the
0: wild. They have as much room as they fucking want. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's that's a good way to look at it. You know, there is certainly something, there is certainly such a thing as too small, but I really don't think, in all honesty, if you're doing it correctly, there is nothing, no too big, I suppose. It seems
1: really prominent with, uh, Ant keepers as well. Necessarily, the enclosure size. Everyone's really quick to jump on. Your enclosure is too big. You need a small enclosure for when that. Yeah, 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 yeah. This length, this size. It's like no. <laughs> as long as you're providing, you know, as much foliage and hiding places as you can, there is no nothing is too big for space. Yeah. And you'll probably find that they'll use all of it.
0: Yeah, I suppose it's that whole, you know, if you set it up correctly, if you take that, grab that photo that you found online of the, the distribution, you know, where that animal is found, look at its microclimate, look at what it does in its day and implement that into your enclosure. Absolutely. There's, there's really no way you can go wrong if you do it right there is no way you can go wrong and i think that's... if you've got if you've got more and more people that have zoo grade enclosures in their house you know that piece of habitat if for being honest that's going to put us in a good stead down the track
1: absolutely it will
0: like i don't see an, a single downside to that if we can i think we need to start I, I'm glad that it's happening uh, nowadays in in Australia. It's finally reached here, but I think we really need to start pushing that. You know, this idea of the naturalistic keeping and the the larger enclosures and the filling in the microhabitats of each individual animal and that sort of stuff. It's really going to put us in good stead. Yeah, I, I'm I'm really
1: excited for the days where. You know, there's no such thing as fake grass in a lizard enclosure. It's, it's going to be good. <laughs> fake grass and tiles. Not, that's it. Tiles, especially. All the vinyl. <laughs> oh,
0: no. Oh, it's so bad. Oh, no.
1: It doesn't I mean anyone. Any in, in the same
0: vein, I suppose we also have to get rid of the dollhouses, don't we?
1: <laughs> I don't know. That, that might be a bit hard one to convince. <laughs> <laughs> Doll oh, houses goodness. and little beds.
0: Doll houses. Oh geez. It's certainly an interesting world. Um I think our main takeaways from, from this episode is gonna be that in all honesty, the system that we've got in place currently is probably not that bad. Um as much as we'll play it up with, you know, little inconsistencies and things like that. Realistically, what they've put forward is manageable it's manageable it's it's certainly doable that's that's the same thing i just said that twice anyway um it's certainly something that we can work with in the parameters that they have given Yes, and it's i think it's beneficially constricting what we do how we do it what we can keep how we keep it the whole shebang um because i think we are certainly in a much better spot than some other parts of the world regarding yeah. the way that people go about things, I think.
1: I think you're right.
0: Fair enough. I reckon that's, that's like, generally speaking, that's most of the regulation stuff, to be honest. I mean, that's a pretty solid synopsis of at least our views on it all. Uh, most certainly people that are listening, feel free to send us a message or send us a comment, whatever it is about what you believe regarding regulation side of things and what you think we can do as a, as a hobby or as some say an industry to self-regulate ourselves to avoid the need for further regulation by governments and by lawmakers as well. Um, So I suppose that will do us for this episode. Dane, where can the lovely people follow you?
1: Uh, You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Blue Horizon Reptiles.
0: Perfect. And if you want to see any of the shenanigans that I get up to, uh, Josh's Aussie Reptiles on just about any platform, if you search it up, I'm sure you'll find it. Uh, Hopefully you're all keeping safe and hope you all enjoyed that episode. Um, As I said, feel free to send us a message or a comment uh, and Enjoy. Thanks. Bye.